In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Yeah. So there's there's two, I think, two really important questions in there. One is about what systemically is going on such that doctors aren't getting this other set of information, you know, other bits of information. Why is it being kept from them? But then what about doctors and their training leads us to have such fragile egos, you know, that we can't be confronted with something that we haven't learned yet without feeling like we're incompetent or we're going to be found out as frauds. And I think it gets down, it gets, it comes down to um, the real lack of permission in medical education to not know, to express uncertainty. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I am Dr. Roger McFillin. The Radically Genuine Podcast is now in the top 1% of global downloads. How did that happen? Don't know. Well, I have an idea. Okay. Right. We, are, <laughs> we are not owned by a media company. We do not have a social media team driving exposure. We'd sure we do, Sean. <laughs> if you want to call him that. We do not charge for our podcast. We have no advertising revenue. What we have is a loyal and growing listener base who is willing to share episodes. If you value our content and are learning very important information that is purposely being withheld from all of us, please do us a favor. Click five stars and rate the podcast. Even better, write a review. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and share it with a minimum of three people you know. Wow, I like that. This is how movements grow. I actually believe, actually no, some of our episodes have potentially saved lives because I get the emails. I recently posted a YouTube video on Lexapro for kids. It's not too long. However, our YouTube channel is heavily <laughs> restricted. It's comical at this point. Well, you use, I'm very, um, I don't like to imply intent, but there's something funky happening. <laughs> so to that point about subscribing, um, everybody listening right now in the show summary, there's a link to go to our YouTube page. Yeah, if you're not subscribed, just tap subscribe. And here's the important thing. And I think this is where maybe we've been missing the mark a little bit is that you have to tap the notification bell and make sure you're choosing all so that all of our videos that are getting posted will get served in, in your feed because I think that's where we're getting you know, held back a little bit. So please subscribe. Yeah, when we talk about life-saving information, many people are still not aware that Lexapro was approved for children and teens as young as seven despite a six-fold increase in suicidality compared to placebo. That's why this information needs to be shared. Our society is at a crossroads. We're awakening to a harsh reality. Our once trusted allopathic medical system is entangled in a web of pharmaceutical interests plagued by scientific misconduct and burdened by generations of healthcare professionals operating within a compromised framework. 
What's paraded as evidence-based healthcare often amounts to nothing more than a new drug, a mere band-aid masking symptoms, while the profound understanding of the underlying diseases and genuine paths to restoration remain elusive. The alarming truth is, despite the constant influx of new medications, our healthcare statistics paint a bleak, a bleak picture, with life expectancy even on the decline. The sick care system seems to thrive on inventing new diseases, merely medicating symptoms without making substantial strides toward actual recovery. Many are trapped in a cycle of perpetual suffering, coerced into believing that managing their ailment is the best they can hope for. Take a closer look and you'll find a landscape dotted with conditions by the name of fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome, polycystic ovarian, ovarian syndrome, which is PCOS, mood disorders, ADHD, mere manifestations of a system more adept at labeling than healing. It's time to question the narrative, challenge the status quo, demand that a healthcare system that prioritizes well-being over pharmaceutical profits. At the forefront of this revolution stands ethical physicians who have liberated themselves from the matrix, seeing beyond years of indoctrination. While certain doctors may robotically regurgitate pharmaceutical narratives, their eyes glazed over in a trance, others surge ahead, breaking free from the mold, determined to innovate and authentically restore health. It's a battle between those who cling to the status quo and those who boldly navigate uncharted waters in the pursuit of genuine healing. The Radically Genuine podcast seeks out individuals who defy the norm, those brave souls with a story to tell, the ones who've dared to ask tough questions, emerge with answers that challenge the very fabric of our understanding. We want to spotlight these disruptors, the thinkers and the healers who refuse to settle, the search for truth. To join us today, we have one of those trailblazers. Her name is Dr. Kristen Ryman. She's a board-certified family physician and author with a special interest in complex, chronic, medically mysterious illnesses. She's a graduate of Yale and Stanford School of Medicine. Last I heard, they're pretty hard to get into. <laughs> she is the author of Life After Lyme, a comprehensive do-it-yourself manual to making a complete recovery from an all-too-common illness. She has a story to tell, and I don't want to give away too much of it up front, but I'm fascinated to learn about her journey and her insights into restoring health. Dr. Kristen Ryman, welcome to the Radically Genuine podcast. Thanks, guys. It's really an honor to be here. Well, we have to start with your story. I know you've probably told it a lot on uh, various podcasts or different work that you're doing. If you can kind of take us through your own personal background that's brought you to this place in your own mission as a healthcare professional and how you were able to restore your own health. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I, think, I think I should start this story actually at Stanford School of Medicine because at the time, even though I didn't know, um, some of the things I was learning um, to question would be really relevant to me later looking back, I can remember a moment sitting in uh, microbiology class, actually, where we were learning about Lyme, Borrelia, Burgdorferi, the spirochetic 
bacterial organism that is the causative agent of Lyme disease. And I remember feeling like there was some hand waving going on. Like, you know, when you have like a BS meter that just kind of goes off, I felt like I had that moment and I was sort of like, what, what, why, why would there need to be any hand waving? We're just learning microbiology here. But they were saying things like, you know, 20% of people who get this infection don't really seem to, you know, recover on the antibiotics. And I was thinking, well, 20% is kind of a big number, actually, one in five, right? And they were saying things like, you can only really get this um, if you get bitten by the black-legged deer tick, which really only happens in Pennsylvania and New Jersey and New York. And I was thinking, wow, how do ticks follow borders? <laughs> like, how do they pay attention to those details that are in this textbook and in this lecture? Um, we tra I've traveled to Pennsylvania. My husband's from Pennsylvania. I mean, I don't live there anymore. We were learning that it could take years to manifest symptoms, meaning years after you returned from one of these three hotbed states and lived anywhere else in the world. And yet we weren't looking for this at Stanford. I remember we had one patient who was so sick, he'd been in the hospital for 600 days. I mean, that's absurd, right? He'd had every test known to man. Um, the doctors thought he was faking it and crazy. And I just remember thinking, this was a healthy, robust, you know, high functioning citizen who's now bedridden for 600 days in Stanford Hospital. I don't think he chose this. Like, I don't think he's here wasting our time just to be a jerk. And um, we just don't really understand what's going on. At one point, his wife brought up the possibility of Lyme disease. And I remember the doctors kind of laughing, like, well, he didn't have any history of Pennsylvania. And I just, I just remember thinking, like, how are we not thinking more broadly about these things? Um, so that was back in medical school. Um, I didn't have, I wasn't sick then. I wasn't, I, I was very robust. I had been an athlete in college. I sort of never thought I would fall into the category that many of my patients are now in, which is the person who becomes completely debilitated. But I did become debilitated after a tick bite in my 40s. So I was a new mom. I'd been you know, up all night with a brand new baby nursing for several months, and I was exhausted. And I remember feeling very tired and thinking, wow, this is really abnormal. Um, but I would wake up in the morning and say things to myself like, wow, this is maybe, this is kind of how my patients with fibromyalgia describe how they feel when they wake up and, you know, all day long, which is like a truck hit them and they've had eight or 10 hours of sleep and they wake up exhausted and in pain everywhere. And I remember just sort of ch chalking it up to, well, I'm not sleeping, you know, I'm nursing every hour on the hour um, for months and months and months. And um, then a patient came to see me who was a new patient. And she had also been a highly functioning adult who had a job that she loved and she was actually an artist model. And so she would pose nude for new artists and teach them how to sort of understand the human form. And she would teach other people how to, to do the job she did because she was so good at it. She was no longer able to do it because she couldn't con control her bladder. She was just unable to control her urine and she had been all over. She'd had a sort of a febrile illness, a fever after travel and like walking in the woods and she had some rashes, but um, no one had looked up, look, looked for Lyme in her. And she was convinced she had not only Lyme disease, but a couple of what's called co-infections, other infections that travel in ticks. So Bartonella, Babesia. I hadn't heard these, these, you know, bugs since microbiology back at Stanford. They weren't things that were commonly looked for or appreciated. And I said, wow, why do you think you have these things? And she said, I've been researching this for nine months. And if you're going to be my doctor, you're going to have to research too. And she just hands me the stack. It's like she had it ready. She hands me like the six inch stack of papers that she printed off the internet from her research. And I remember this moment in that, in that moment of her passing it over to me, I was like, 
I'm going to read that because she's, she, no one cares more about her health than her. She's obviously very intelligent. She's done this work and I'm missing something. And all these doctors are missing something in her and I don't want to miss it too. So I read all the, all the information and there was lots of stuff in there. There were, you know, um, you know, published papers that she printed out from, you know, PubMed showing that, you know, Lyme can still live on in dogs after four months of antibiotics and Lyme can still be cultured live out of a knee joint from a person who's had 10 months of IV ceftriaxone for that Lyme years later. And I was just like, mind was blowing in little directions for the whole time that I was reading it. And I just kept thinking, wow, I have been missing Lyme all over the place in all sorts of patients for the last five years. And I think I might be missing it in myself because some of these symptoms are sound just like a Lyme recurrence. So I sort of, you know, batted that idea around for a while. I was still nursing my last child and didn't want to stop out of fear of, you know, having Lyme and passing that on to him. Cause I was also learning that you can pass it on through breast milk and it's been found in, you know, placentas of miscarried babies. I mean, it really gets around this infection. Um, although that wasn't something that we were taught in medical school either. So I was kind of freaking out, to be honest. I remember my oldest son came down one morning and I was like in my internet research craze and maybe I was crying and kind of overwhelmed. And he goes, mom, why are you so freaked out by this? Why don't you just like get on antibiotics if you think you have Lyme? And I said, I really, that's a big decision. And I don't want to have to wean my kid to get on antibiotics and I'll probably have to treat him too. I don't really want to give him antibiotics, but I don't want to do that out of fear. And in that moment, I had this clarity and I just said, you know what? I think I really need like a tick bite and a bullseye rash to really do this right and not be doing it out of fear. This was in November of 2011. After an ice storm, three days later, I pulled a tick off my butt in the middle of the night while nursing. And three days after that, I had a bullseye and I got what I asked for and I got really, really sick. And there's a whole other you know, journey after that that I can keep going on. But um, long story short, it was really a near-death experience for me. I was in my bed for months and months. I couldn't get out. I was in terrible pain that was only relieved by lying flat on my back, not moving. You know, I wasn't able to work for five weeks. I had a hospitalization, um, nearly died from a dilated overdose. I mean, it was nuts. It was crazy. And um, I've never been as sick as that. Never want to be as sick as that again. And it took another two years for me to kind of learn how to treat myself and, you know, build my toolbox with things that weren't antibiotics. Cause I tried that initially and it didn't, didn't, didn't help me. Yeah. I wanted to so, ask um, what, what your experience yeah. was with the medical system as a patient when you were presenting with all these symptoms, how did they respond to you? I was afraid I was going to get kicked out of medicine because, you know, I was learning not only stuff that we hadn't learned, but I was learning how, kind of politically incorrect it is to think that chronic Lyme is a thing and that you need long-term antibiotics to get out of it and that there's anything outside the sort of standard, um, you know, rigmarole of what you're supposed to do, which is essentially diagnose it with either a bullseye rash or a two-step test, you know, an ELISA test followed by a Western blot. And if those are positive or the bullseye rash is there and it's over a certain, you know, certain centimeters and it's the perfect bullseye, like even though Lyme can present as no bullseye, no rash. It can present as some other rash. Um, they're very dogmatic about it. We were trained to be kind of dogmatic about it. But I learned also that there are two sets of guidelines. And the second set of guidelines that we didn't learn in medical school 
um, which come from the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society, or ILADS, um, are actually guidelines that work. And if you follow them, people get well. But I was learning that you don't talk about those guidelines because those guidelines were written by the quote, crazy Lyme doctors. And um, yeah, those people were super denigrated. I remember them being denigrated in medical school too. I have to ask a question about this because, you know, these are things that we, we observe with our medical professionals. If they don't understand it, they assume there's no other answer. And the problem is somehow then within the patient. And there is an arrogance that we certainly observe in situations like this. Obviously, there's limitations in your training. Can you help us understand the, the training of a medical professional at the highest level? St Stanford School of Medicine is one of the top medical schools in the world. If there's information that is kept from you and being able to accurately diagnose and treat a condition as common as Lyme's disease, what are the influences what is happening within systemically within the, the training and the teaching that leads to the arrogance and the limitations in their ability to extend beyond what they were told? Yeah. So there's, there's two, I think two really important questions in there. One is about what systemically is going on such that doctors aren't getting this other set of information, you know, other bits of information. Why is it being kept from them? But then what about doctors and their training leads us to, have such fragile egos, you know, that we can't be confronted with something that we haven't learned yet without feeling like we're incompetent or we're going to be found out as frauds. And I think it gets down, it gets, it comes down to um, the real lack of permission in medical education to not know, hmm. to express uncertainty. I was well known in my rotations for saying, I don't know. And I um, got a lot of negative feedback for that negative feedback people you know attendings would say to me you know you're really smart you actually know a lot but we're we're concerned that you say i don't know quite a bit mm -hmm. i was like okay so i see how this game is played i'm not sure i want to play it but <laughs> i see what's expected well dr ryman when you were excuse me handed that stack of research from a, a client or a patient how did you overcome that that bias or that mindset that was instilled in you through your training uh, at the university level well, I don't think I ever really accepted that. I, you know, I think I was I was an outlier in that way. I mean, I went to med school a little bit older too, so I had you know graduated from college, and then I spent a couple of years in China, and then I spent a few years in Texas, you know, learning all the pre med requirements. I had to take biology, and I had to take chemistry, and I had to take organic chemistry, and all the things I had skipped at Yale because I was an American studies major, and those weren't required. So I had to kind of do a bunch of things before I was able to apply to medical school. And so I was older and I had a baby, you know, I, I think at some, to some degree, I knew myself, you know, a little bit more than someone who may be, who may go to med school at age 20 or 21. Um, and I also, I don't know, I, I don't, I don't suffer bullshit gladly, you know, it's never really been okay with me to lie to people. <laughs> and so when I, when I sniffed it out, I, kind of would just take note. I mean, I wasn't always vocal about it. I mean, there's a hierarchy and you have to, to some degree, play the game in medicine, but I would make note. You know, I was I was aware of, as one of my mentors would say, like the aware of the moment where you give yourself permission to abandon yourself, but you've made that, you've given yourself permission and you're still yourself. You know, you're setting aside, I'm not gonna call this attending out for talking badly about a patient in front of these other students because that's gonna be disastrous for my 
career, but I'm going to notice it and I'm going to talk about it later with people and it's, I'm not going to let it be okay. You know, in my and one of the things that's normalized and okay is pretending you know things when you don't. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to say is I don't really know if people believe they're intentionally lying to their patients. And instead, I think they're lying to themselves. There's a story that, you know, that's been told and um, that they're training. I mean, that we reside under the beacon of scientific supremacy and, uh, you know, what we're, what physicians are kind of taught and told is the highest level of kind of research evidence that exists. And, you know, in a lot of ways we dismiss cross culturally, like a, a lot of other healing practices that historically have existed or, you know, from indigenous cultures or a number of things, which are a direction I definitely want to go into. But you know what I was thinking about when I was thinking, when I was considering questions for this podcast, do you remember that television show, um, Wait, I'm the pop culture guy. <laughs> House MD. Oh, I love House. That that television show was like from 2004 to 2012. He was like this antisocial maverick of yeah. a doctor, like specialized in like diagnostic medicine. Same personality as you. <laughs> I wouldn't say so. Um, but he had this like advanced problem solving ability to like uncover the origins of mysterious illness, mm -hmm. right? And I just feel like we're losing that from our from our medical professionals. This like this passionate desire to like this seeking out truth by all possible mechanisms through advanced critical thinking and problem solving and a asking the right questions. And I'm not certain if that is you know part of the training. It's a consequence of kind of the environments which many professionals are just working in right now. Eight minute meetings or, or so so forth. Like you're just pushed to see more and more patients. But Dr. Ryman, I mean, I wanted to get your you know your thoughts on like our loss of our ability to kind of critically analyze and provide patients valuable information. I mean, the COVID crisis has really kind of revealed some of these challenges. Yeah. I mean, that's still a tender point for me. I, I've been so disappointed is not even a strong enough word. Just, just so shocked and um, dismayed by the lack of curiosity and thinking among my medical tribe. You know, I honestly don't even really feel like it, they're my tribe anymore. I, I can't really connect with the stories that people are, are living with and kind of promoting it's been really hard to watch. And, you know, I remember in the beginning of, of, of COVID reaching out to, you know, I remember I just saw it recently in my, in my outbox was looking through emails and I found one that I'd said to my smartest and most thoughtful doctor friends. And it went out to like 15 people who since, you know, between medical school, residency, training, my mentors, like different people I've met who I just felt like we can have a real conversation about this, I believe about the narrative that's being promoted and you know whether it makes sense and how we feel about the fact that doctors who are questioning it are getting crushed and shut down you, you made me you made me think of something so i mean we glossed over it um a little bit i mean you talked about chronic lyme disease and then this label of like crazy lyme doctor mm -hmm. um what's being stigmatized now in the same manner in terms of like writ large, like what issues are causing that kind of uh, yeah, in, the, in the medical field, anti-vaxxers, 
Yeah. Definitely that. I mean, I, I can't speak actually from within the medical field anymore because I haven't really been there from the last few years. Okay. I really have stepped away. Um, but I, before I stepped away, I was actually a professional development coach working with a local medical school um, connected to the program that I trained in and had been faculty in. And as a coach, I got to watch medical students go through their training for four years and you know meet with them every Thursday for several hours. And it was really an interesting thing to get to see. And um, I remember at one of their, you know, and I could see their, I could see their minds come in so open and their hearts so open and their curiosity really still intact. And then just, it all got kind of drilled out of most of them to the point where at one of their final gatherings, we had sort of a week long gathering at the end of four years for each cohort. And one of the last ones I attended, there was they had sort of a case-based learning where you had to get in groups and talk about how would you deal, like how, how would you um, have the conversation from a patient-centered, um, patient-centered consensus-based conversation with a patient who's who didn't wanna give their children a vaccine. And it wasn't actually that the facilitators weren't didn't have any interest in actually hosting or teaching them how to host a conversation that was open and neutral and curious and collaborative. It was really about how do you get people to do what you want them to do, despite the fact that they're crazy. Mm. And I almost had to leave the room and vomit. It was like so distressing. To piggyback off that. So I recently started doing some research into the flu vaccine. As many know, the flu vaccine is mandated for all healthcare professionals for the most part. Um, I don't know how new that is. It's just that I'm dealing with it because I have a daughter who's in a doctoral program. I didn't know it was mandated. Doctoral program for physical therapy. And uh, to do clinicals, they're requiring the flu vaccine. Now, some things are imprinted on my mind. We had a patient here at Center for Integrated Behavioral Health years ago. It was a healthcare professional, got the flu vaccine and developed Guillain-Barr syndrome, I believe it was. And, um, you know, was really physically impacted. Um, it was a wheelchair bound. Um, so a lot, lot of concerns, right? The efficacy of the flu vaccine is very, very poor, right? So like there is... There is not a lot of evidence to suggest that this is going to prevent you from getting the flu and or spreading the flu. But yet what's happening in her school are the professors are trying to guilt them because there is resistance because they're young, healthy people and they're being forced to get a vaccination that doesn't work but they're being guilted by the same messages we saw around the COVID vaccine was that you have a responsibility to keep others safe. And, uh, you know, that, that pushes a lot of people to getting a medical intervention where they don't believe in it because they're fearful of like harming somebody else, regardless of what that evidence even uh, shows. So, you know, the, the question is, I, I want to get your thoughts on this, like the man, mandating of certain vaccines, like the, the flu vaccine. Now, what are, what are your thoughts? Why is that? Why is that even happening in your opinion, given the efficacy we have? 
So I'm not an expert on why it's happening. And I would say the same for the question of, well, why is Lyme so controversial? And I remember going down both of those paths for a while and just becoming increasingly um, concerned that it led to money, like it had to do with money and it had to do with reimbursement to the hospital around um, from Medicare, I think. So again, I'm not an expert in this, but it, there was at some point um, clarity for me because I started refusing the flu vaccine after I had Lyme. And I um, had to go through, jump through a lot of hoops to be able to continue working in the hospital system I was working in. Cause it was about the time, it was about 10, maybe 15 years ago that they started mandating that. And um, I had been religiously getting my flu shot every year since I had a kid who nearly died of the flu when he was three. And then I, I would, I mean, as a resident, I would literally bring the shots home and give them to all of us in the kitchen because I was like, look, clearly. And then I had Lyme and I learned what I learned. And I learned that a lot of people who have such bad Lyme disease as I did have a dysregulated immune system. And there was um, a lot of evidence that I found that, it, that vaccines can dysregulate your immune system. And not just evidence in terms of like first principles and you know scientific literature, but also evidence in the form of patients with stories who said, I had been fine with my Lyme symptoms. I was better until I got a flu vaccine. And then everything crashed and I was back where I started. And so just based on what I was learning, I was like, well, not interested. Like the things I've learned about health and, you know, nutrition and sleep and exercise and all the, all the foundational pieces for a healthy, strong immune system that I've had to cultivate to dig myself out of the hole that was Lyme, I still do. Like, I'm, and I'm not going back anytime soon. So I felt pretty safe in my ability to protect myself and my family from flu and, you know, other infections. And then you know, not be a not be a danger to patients, right? But they wanted, you know, proof from my family doctor, then they wanted and they said, your family doctor is not good enough, you need proof from a rheumatologist or an infectious disease specialist. It was it was really ridiculous. I, I did end up getting probably eight years of vaccine exemptions. Um, and it wasn't until COVID mandates came out. And I got a COVID mandate um, exemption for my for my family doctor for the same reasons I'd been exempt from the flu, and they refused it. And they said, by the way, we're refusing your flu shot exemption this year too. How do they get that right? How did they get that right? Oh, the right to do it. I thought you meant how did they get it correct? Oh, I was like, I'm not correct. Sure. <laughs> yeah. How do they have the right to refuse yeah. an exemption? I don't think they do. I think it's it's bullying, you know. I think it's they know they can so they do, you know. Because this is where we're at. My my daughter did have an adverse reaction to a flu shot. And they are saying that the only way that she can get a medical exemption is if the flu shot was potentially fatal. So, it has to be a fatal uh, adverse reaction. So she has to be dead. So she has to be the well, logic I mean, it's in that. Well, she's exempt then, right? I mean, at least she's exempt. What she's ridiculous. not exempt. They're, no, if she's dead, I'm saying. Yeah, if she's true. dead. So that so she has to get a flu shot that doesn't work and have to deal with an adverse reaction to it. We don't know what actually would happen because they say so. And this is the medical authority that I believe this is one of the pressing issues of our time. See, I want the fight. My daughter doesn't want the fight. Mm. She um wants to get her degree and she wants to get through her program. Yeah. And um, I feel like we have to make this an, an issue and I want to go on television about it, you know, and uh, I want to talk about it on the podcast, which I'm doing right now. 
But these are the things that are occurring across the United States. The fact that they're still mandating a COVID vaccine is insanity to me. Absolute insanity. So I know we don't want to turn this podcast into all the reasons behind this. Um, but it's worth, it's worth noting for us to talk about what is actually happening in American culture right now, which uh, I think does violate our, our rights. It violates our civil liberties. And I, unless we as a, as a culture are going to rise up against these mandates, I don't think there's going to be change. And we, fear, is a, fear is very manipulative, very controlling, right? And I think, Kristen, I want to ask questions about your recovery process and how you eventually did heal because, you know, I hear this word fear and how I know you see the mind-body connection in, in healing. But how did you move outside of the allopathic model and how did you actually f- find a way for your body to, to fight this off? I think our bodies are designed to heal. How did you get everything in alignment to be able to do that? Yeah. Um, well, like I said, it was a couple year process. It started with a, like three or four months of antibiotics. Um, and I was taking several antibiotics because I learned at that point that Lyme has multiple forms. And as soon as you throw doxycycline at it, which is kind of the first line agent that doctors will use if they're going to treat it, it rolls up. So you'll kill some of it, but the, the, the smart ones roll up into hiding. They hide in what's called cyst forms or L forms, stationary forms. And they hang out in biofilm, which is the layers they create, all bugs create in our body to kind of live in community and share resources and avoid the immune system. And it can't be killed, can't be killed. So um, I had done that for three months and I was progressively better. I mean, I was sleeping 12 hours a night. I had fevers all night, but I was working still. And um, after three months felt better and stopped the antibiotics. Two weeks later, my symptoms all came back which I had been told they would, although I didn't really want to believe that because you really have to do an overhaul of your immune system to help it join the fight. You can't just keep hammering it with antibiotics unless you want to be on that for life, which has its own downsides, right? In terms of the gut microbiome and all sorts of other things, mitochondria. And so I, um, at that point, had been learning some other things to do. So when it came back, I took a different tap. But I was still very, very ill. I mean, at that point, that was when I had the hospitalization where intractable pain and um, came home and was really, you know, had lost 30 pounds. I was a mess and still not really getting out of bed without pain. I went to see a homeopathic family physician named Melinda Tony. She was, she practiced in the Lehigh Valley for years and years. Many people knew her. I'd never met her before, but she was very kind. And she offered to um, do like a session with me. So I sat with her and she listened to my story and the way homeopathy works is, you know, the doctor listens carefully for clues that might give insights into what remedy they need to use. And so she heard my whole story and she bustled off into her kitchen to whip up some homeopathy. She's like, Oh, I know exactly what you need. So she's off making this little concoction for me. And I remember sitting on her couch in a blanket and just like shaking and I just kept thinking, I feel like a shell. I feel like I've I've lost myself. I'm just a shell of who I was. And she comes back in and she says, take this homeopathy. Um, Let me know how it goes and tell me how your pain is tomorrow. And I sort of laughed. I was like, my pain, like my pain isn't even the worst of it. And this poor woman who'd already sat there for two hours, sat back down and said, tell me what the worst of it is. And what I hadn't told her was that I had been 
you know, in my bed for five weeks, had come down one night for dinner. And my husband, Greg said, look, mommy's downstairs for dinner. Yay. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, what are you talking about? You haven't been downstairs for a meal in five weeks. And I had this moment where I was like, oh my God, you guys must have thought I was upstairs dying in my bed, right? Did you think mom was dying? Kind of making a joke of it. And they all kind of nodded and said, yeah. Wow. And I said, no, who really thought I was dying? And they all looked down at the plates and shook, said their hand, put their hands up. And I was like, oh my gosh, my kids thought I was dying. And I'm 42, which is how old my mom was when she died and left four kids behind. And I remembered in that moment that I'd always sort of imagined I would die at 42 and leave four kids behind, you know? And then of course I had kids of my own and I was like, well, clearly I'm not going to make that choice. Like that's not my life. That was a random fluke cancer. That's not going to take me. But suddenly I realized, wow, I'd done it. Like I, I'd done it. And I said to her, the worst is I feel like I'm dying. Like, I feel like I have to will myself to take a breath that I have to talk my body into being alive every moment. And she goes, your mother died at 42, but that was her path. This is your path. She made her choice and you can make your choice. And it make your choice makes every bit of difference in terms of how I support you on your path. So text me tomorrow and let me know what your choice is. And that blew my mind a little bit. I got in the car because I wasn't driving. I couldn't drive. I was on, you know, fentanyl patch for pain. And my husband was like, how to go? And I told him that. And he said, oh, well, do me a favor and text me as well. And I was like, oh, my <laughs> God, you poor man. You've, like, been holding it all together for months and months. And you also are experiencing me dying. And I was like, yeah, I'll do it. So I got into bed that night. And I remember lying there going, how do you make a choice like that? said, well, how do I make any choice? I imagine myself on a path. I feel the feelings that come up. And I know once I feel the feelings, what the right choice is for me. So I imagined myself dying and nothing came up, no feelings. I was like, yeah, it's already happened. Like your work has gone on without you. They've found replacements for you at work. They're getting the job done. Your husband's taken over. Your kids are fine. Like I'll die. Greg will get a new wife. Everyone will be happy. It, it would actually be okay. Like no emotion. I say that now and I have emotion, but I'm like, I had no emotion. I was like, okay, that's interesting. Or I could live. And again, I had no emotion, but I had this blast of awareness that said, yeah, but if you're alive, there's going to be only living for love and bliss and saving the planet, jumping on trampolines with your daughter and your sons. Like there's not going to be any fear of what kind of doctor you're becoming or any kind of like fear about practicing medicine in a way that's outside the box. Like you're only going to live for the good stuff. And I was like, huh? that's powerful and interesting. I still don't know what my choice is. So I went to bed, woke up in the morning, had the same conversation, no clarity. But the next thing that happened is I got out of my bed. And the next thing I know, I was like bouncing around the streets on the Lanta bus on my way to physical therapy. And I was like, that's interesting. Got to physical therapy, came home, and then found myself in the garden. Like literally I woke, I was like, my eyes open. I'm like, oh, here I am sitting in my garden. Wow, the red bud is blooming. Wow, it's spring. I better text Melinda. So I text her. I said, look, I don't really know what's going on here. All I know is I've gotten up and had breakfast downstairs. I went to physical therapy and now I'm sitting in my garden. I feel like maybe I'm choosing life. And she was like, woohoo, good job. Keep me posted. Continue to you know, stay the course. And I can't, and that night when I went to bed, I got into my bed and I was like, wow, hi, stranger. I've been cheating on you all day with living. 
without really knowing it. I mean, it, I can't say that it was intentional. My body was like walking me through the steps of living. And it just continued to do that for months without like, you know, me making it. So it's hard to say that because I've been used to feeling like I'm in control of my story. I'm in control of my choices. I'm making these intentions and following them. No, I was following along as my body like took steps towards being alive. And it took a couple years for me to really feel back in my body. And there was other stuff, you know, I used a bunch of herbs, I used chlorine dioxide, all that stuff, I think, wouldn't have done anything without me really getting clear on my choice first. That's powerful. Do you believe coincidence exists? Depends on what you mean by coincidence. So was there some divine intervention for you to meet this homeopath and to get that message? I think every bit of the story was divine intervention. I think the whole thing was a total gift and was part of my soul's path. I think I probably set it up with my guides and elders prior to coming here. And we were like, look, there's going to be this crazy experience, which is going to shake you to your core. You're going to want to die and you're not going to die because you're going to choose to live. And when you become who you become, you'll look back and you'll realize that all this was part want, of it. You want to know something that's fascinating. I have this one client that I'm struggling with meditating, trying to kind of get the answers, which generally come to me in meditation. And um, I had this credible feeling that the answers were about to come. Um, in fact, I was even telling Sean before this podcast, I had this credible lift in mood and energy that I've been experiencing. And this, your story is the solution. It's the answer that I need to be able to provide this client. And I know it in my heart. And listening to you talk about that experience with the homeopath and what she said to you, gave me tingles and a feeling of energy from my head down to my toes in a way that I can't even begin to explain. You scooted back in your chair. <laughs> Saw you. And I know exactly what I have to say now. And, Beautiful. And these are the things that you know, I've certainly been experiencing that um, when we have a shift in consciousness, when we expand our consciousness and we move beyond what we know in this physical reality, that you realize how self-limiting our minds are and that we are divine souls with an incredible purpose, but so many people are still asleep. They don't know it. They don't know who they are. They don't know what they're capable of. And we have limited ourselves in our ability to heal, heal ourselves physically, heal ourselves emotionally, but also heal through our experiences, through our energy, our presence, through love. We have this whole self-limiting idea of what reality is that has been, you know, in my opinion, sold to us. And an awakening for me is an expansion of consciousness about increasing awareness of what else does exist, about other possibilities. For example, um, I mentioned, you know, how much, whether, whether it's this like ethnocentrism that exists, um, you know, with Western medicine and denying the existence of other healing modalities and indigenous cultures and so forth. The Amazon rainforest, for example, has more than 150,000 species of plant-rich, 
beneficial nutrients, phytochemicals, active elements. Many of these have antioxidant, antibacterial, anti-inflammatory properties. They've been used as, as forms of medicine for centuries. But yet it is, they are, they are restricted. They, they are censored. The information around them, they are kept. There are laws even that are protecting us from access to them. And you have to almost completely be willing to step outside what you've been taught and what you know to be true in order to have access to other information. And until you believe that this exists, it will not be provided for you. But once you believe, and there's a power of belief here, Kristen, in which your story demonstrates that once you believed you could heal, once you believed you could live, once you believed you had a higher purpose and a higher calling, then you took those steps in that path. Yeah. I used to, um, in medical school, I remember being in touch with some of these alternative, you know, alternative, traditional, deeply rooted, ancient, <laughs> efficacious, safe and nourishing traditions. Right? Like acupuncture, I was always really interested in, actually became an acupuncturist too during residency. I was really interested in Chinese medicine and herbs. I remember having this kind of diagram in my head going, wow, you know, medical school feels like drinking from a fire hose. And we think this is all to know, which is why we study so hard to like gather all this information and systematize it and create, you know, structures that help us remember it and mnemonics. But I bet there's like, I bet maybe half of what's out there is medicine and the other half is everything else. Over the years, I've like, I've decided that that little piece of the pie that is medicine is like so much smaller than half. You know, it, it's like minuscule, it's like 1%. And yet doctors are trained to believe that 1% is the whole pie. And I think it's it's part of where that arrogance comes from. And that, you know, I, I in medical school, I coined the term misinformation with authority because we talk about some attendings who would just spout stuff. And then the, you'd be like, I just saw him run to the call room to go read to make sure that was right. Or pimp us so that he didn't have to remember or look it up, you know, pretending he knew it or she. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, there's such a there's such a culture of you have to know and you have to present yourself with authority. Um, I have found that patients actually appreciate when I say I don't know and let's try to figure it out together. It's just so much more honest. I feel so much more in integrity. And yeah, I mean, there's so much less to risk if you upfront say this isn't my wheelhouse, but I'll do my best, you know. So on your road to recovery. Um what do you, how much do you think your mindset shift contributed to you getting well and how much was maybe the holistic approaches you pursued? I think the mind shift, the mindset shift was um, probably necessary, but not sufficient. I don't think anything else would have really worked until that happened. I really believe that it was a pivotal moment. I mean, I, like I said, I went to bed that night, not out of pain, but I wasn't suffering anymore. Like the next day I was bouncing around Atlanta bus in pain, but I wasn't suffering. Mm. I was just like, wow, this is 10 out of 10 pain. I should lie down. And I did for the next two years, I was most of the time in public on my back on the ground, because if I had pain in that moment, I would lie down. No, it would be instantly reset. Take me like five minutes. You know, I go to, I was working with a computer on my back, you know, a laptop because 
that's the only place I was out of pain, but it didn't, I wasn't like getting all up in the weeds with that. I was just like, this is what it is. So I think without that moment, that pivotal choice, I still would have suffered. And I don't know if that other stuff would have worked. I want to ask more about your spiritual path and the journey that, that you're on. Um, so a near death experience is one of those events that lead people to a profound shift in the manner in which they live, as well as probably our own exposure to people who have gifts. It seems like this homeopath had some gifts. She was aware of things that most people aren't aware of. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your spiritual journey and some of the things maybe you have learned since these events um, about, about life, about, about healing, uh, about the universe, anything that you you think that can help in, inspire and maybe can, I mean, just spur into more conversations about, you know, expanding our own consciousness to things that we're not aware of. Yeah, that's such a great question. It's a really big question. I'm not sure where to start. I will say what popped into my head, as you said, from this point on, like, what did you learn from this experience? I think that clarity that came in the question of, do I want to live or do I want to die? You know, when I said, do I want to live and had that moment of like, yeah, but on these terms, on these terms. I feel like everything from that point has been, I imagine if I'm in the midst of a decision, a spectrum of my choices and how they're going to impact me in the world. And if neutral's in the middle and like bliss is over here and despair and fear and, you know, hatred of my neighbors are over here, like I'm not going to choose anything that isn't either neutral or on its way to bliss. There's just no time for that. There's no interest. There's no, I don't feel compelled. I'm just like, energy. like I get really tired. If I consider messing around on that part of the spectrum, I start to yawn. I get exhausted. I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. I'll take that small whisper universe. I don't need the two by four anymore. Like I know that this is my, this is what I'm shooting for. And it does feel like a, a life or death decision. You know, it feels to me non-negotiable because I know what was happening. I believe that part of why I went down so hard is because I wasn't on my path. You know, I was working in a hospital that was pretty toxic as a building with a lot of toxic relationships and a lot of power plays and power struggles and just bad behavior from doctors and otherwise. And I wasn't able to do the kind of work with patients. I was expected to see them in eight to 10 minutes. And part of that time was the time I was supposed to write the note so they could get reimbursed for my time. I wasn't expected to consent people for vaccines, for example. That was actually a big sticking point at the end. They said, listen, we hear you're having conversations that take up the whole amount of your time here, your eight minutes. You're using your eight minutes, essentially, to get informed consent. And I was like, there's nothing more important than informed consent when you're doing a procedure. And I want people to understand that the whole vaccine schedule has never actually been studied. The entire schedule has never been studied. You, you can't say this population got the whole thing, this population didn't get any, and here's the difference. The experiment's on us, and it's not really consented, and it's not blind, and it's not randomized, and it's not really being studied. The data's not really being collected and analyzed. So you have to be aware that if you're making that choice, you know, and oh, by the way, if something bad happens, which it does to some people, and it's really hard to know up front who it might be, 
you have no recourse. You cannot sue anyone. Can't sue the pharmaceutical company. Can't sue the doctor or me or the nurse. It's kind of on you. So if it's on you, you owe it to yourself and your child to really understand what the potential risks are of getting this infection for your child and what the potential benefits are. And by the way, we don't really know until it happens, right? Until you're dead, we don't know if you're going to have a serious reaction and therefore deserve a mandate. Um, and we don't know the benefit. Flu, flu year is a great example. Every year, they know the benefit after the fact, and it's usually less than you know 40% efficacious. So I think people need to understand that before they make a decision that could derail their lives. And they were like, yeah, we don't have time for that. We just need to get these done. If we don't have a certain number, we don't get reimbursed by the federal government for these vaccines. And I was like, that doesn't feel like the neutral to bliss category for me, you know? So for me, it was like a major clar clarifying moment in terms of standing in my truth and integrity and not, and, you know, letting the chips fall where they may. I mean, I eventually lost my job in that hospital because I refused to get a COVID shot and they didn't accept my doctor who's known me for 20 years. They didn't accept her exemption. And I said, fine, I don't want to play with you guys anymore. I feel like you've taken the first do no harm the way it's supposed to be. And and you truly do believe in, in that statement. And now you've gone down this path towards um, other approaches towards like healing yourself. And your area of, of maybe expertise is, is in the area of Lyme disease. And you've written that, that manual, that book on it. Um, there's a link in the, in the show summary. So everybody can click there and, and there's a discount. We'll, we'll mention at the end as well, but I'm just, I'm curious. I've been interested in, I, there was a podcast I listened to maybe about like 10 years ago. I think it was radio lab about parasites. And um, there was a, a gentleman who had like severe allergies and was reading about parasites and gave himself hookworms. I think he went down to uh, maybe Africa and like walked around um, some not very clean areas to give himself hookworms, and he was able to to cure his his allergic reaction. Um, and I see an area where you also speak about is in the area of, of parasites. I'm just when it comes to all these organisms that are living in us. Do we really understand whether or not they're harmful or if we're just coexisting and, and being healthier as a result of them being a part of us? No, not really. So I think for me, it's so complex, right? And any any effort to really sort of understand it to me is an exercise in, you know, the illusion of control because it's so complex. So what I always like to do is take a step back. What does the scoreboard show? Are you happily living with your parasites? Because we all have them. <laughs> Yeah. We may not all have hookworm, but we all have some. And some of us have more than others. Some of us have more than our fair share. And some of us are doing just fine with all our, the parasites and the microbiome that we house and, you know, live with. And others are not. And so I'm always um, big on getting into the ring with those things, you know, whether it's Lyme. I mean, everyone, Lyme is another similar thing. Like a lot of people have Lyme and don't know it because they have no symptoms because their immune system has walled it off. And it's not causing any trouble to which I say, keep doing what you're doing. Okay. Right. You're doing something right for your immune system. Same is true of parasites. So parasites can be very anti-inflammatory, which is why the guy who stomped around in pig, I read that article too, 10 years ago, stomped around in pig poop and his asthma and allergies went away because parasites 
down-regulate your immune system so that the immune system doesn't come and kill them. It's They're basically anti-inflammatory, some of them. Others of them can be more inflammatory. So when we talk about the human body just being so unique and so diverse and there's different ways that your body reacts to everything, we could all have parasitic infections right now, but it's just a matter of how our body's responding to those, whether or not they could have any type of long-term consequences. Yeah. I mean, and I wouldn't even call them infections. We all have, you know, travelers within and some of it, some of, for some of us, it reaches the the threshold of, you know, symptoms, in which case we might call it an infestation or an infection or something to do something about. Um, and others, not so much. I mean, I meet a lot of people who hear this and they say, well, I don't have, you know, all these, I don't have itching. I don't have, you know, worms coming out of my butt. And I say, well, listen, there's a lot of symptoms that you've probably normalized, such as seasonal allergies, such as asthma, such as um, that itchy tickle little <clears throat> in the back of your throat that comes usually around the full moon, you might start to notice. And then you have to <clears throat> swallow it. Please talk more about the full moon because I, I think that's so interesting. Yeah, it is. This was one of the moments in med school that I was like, ding, 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 something interesting was just said by an ER nurse who said, oh, it's a full moon, everyone, get ready. I was like, what do you mean? Are there werewolves here? She's like, no, but the full moon brings out the crazies. The people get crazy on a full moon. And I was like, what is that? Okay, file that away in my little X-file you know, box and figure that out over my years. And one of the things I've learned is that parasites in our bodies move around to mate in the gut on the full moon and sometimes new moon. So if people have cycles of every two week crazies or every two week can't sleep or every two weeks they're um, seizures get worse or every two weeks their pandas flares or their autism is worse, like parasites. Always look for parasites. Yeah, this is fascinating because I used to work in a psychiatric hospital and that was very well known. Right? Yeah. I mean, there's just so much we don't know. We st- we had a, a gentleman on the podcast by the name of Dr. Leland Stillman, mm-hmm. who is a functional medicine physician. We thought he was an amazing. He said, part of my job is to remember things others have forgotten. <laughs> and so he was talking a lot about, you know, what we've learned from from history and, and cross-culturally and so forth. And he recommended a, a book that I'm just putting up right here. It's, it's called uh, Is This Your Child? by Doris Rapp, MD, Discovering and Treating Unrecognized Allergies in Children and Adults, where so many of these symptoms that we now label psychiatric, actually, um, have real legitimate origins um, medically, right? And it's psychiatry has become, uh, you know, this profession that is just, it's kind of the go-to course if anyone is struggling with mood or anxiety or other common psychiatric symptoms. And they have no value in the medical system in being able to really truly do a medical workup to understand all the potential factors that could be leading to that person's presentation, so they're, fr- they're, they're more fully invalidated then in the medical system by telling their symptoms is all are psychiatrically or emotionally. And by the time these people come to me and I'm working with them and I have the time to work with them, hour sessions, one, two times a week, you get to learn about their entire lifestyle and their entire experience and the way that they live. And I, I just think immune health is the answer. If any way, whether it's from mental health, behavioral health, to all other aspects of the system, we should all be integrated in some way to enhance one's metabolic and immune health. And we should be examining everything that contributes to sleep, that contributes to energy, nutritional deficiencies, metabolic 
health, gut health, right? Because all these things are part of that holistic integration of mind-body. And we have a medical system that's like mechanistic. You know, everyone's kind of separate in their own system, in their own specialties. And we've forgotten how to be able to treat the whole. Well, first of all, just preach to all of that. Second of all, it's not just that we're mechanistic. It's that we doc, the way that our system is reimbursed for care, the way that doctors and hospitals are reimbursed for care leaves little time for people to actually have those conversations. But even if they had that time, they wouldn't know what to say. I mean, when's the last time you went to a doctor and they didn't look toxic? Good point. They're not following those rules because they don't know those. They've forgotten those things too. People don't know how to eat anymore. They don't know how to sleep properly. People use an alarm clock by, clock by definition, they're sleep deprived. Yep. If you use an alarm clock by definition, you are not getting the sleep you need. And people hear that and their, their eyes start to glaze over and they start to twitch. And I'm like, but think about it. Your body will wake up when you've rested enough, right? If you're not letting it wake up on its own, you're, you're sleep depriving it. And people have forgotten these basics. And the truth is, it is all the, the myriad of things that can actually come from not following, you know, a right way of living, basically eating and thinking and sleeping and exercising and interacting and expressing joy and finding your joy. Like all those things are few, but they, if you don't follow them, they can lead to pretty much any chronic disease we have. Everything in the, everything in the ICD-10 code you could look up would probably get better or if not cured by following right way of living. The role of fear on immunity. Tell us about it. Oh, it's toxic. And there's actually a lot of papers on this. You can see that the, you know, white blood cells diminish, your natural killer cells go down, all the things that are your front line, your first line of defense against an infection just tank when you're in fear. And one of the things about Lyme that I find so curious, I was never a fear-based person. I don't consider myself one now, but when I had Lyme the first time, actually that near-death experience was the second time. The first time was just an easy peasy. But when I had Lyme the second time, I was really in a state of fear that was so unusual for me. People would say to me, what is going on with you? You know, I have this permanent crease here in my forehead that came during those two years when I was like, in so much pain and in so much fear. And, um, I really, I see people who get these bugs who just, it's almost like the bug brings it in with them. It's like the energy, the frequency of that infection brings in fear with it. And I, I look around at all the fear in our world and I'm like, you know, wow, what are we all, what is our microbiome looking like these days? Because there's a lot of fear out there and it's just not, it's not part of our healing team for recovering from these things. That placebo effect, um, the power of beliefs are something that we have not been able to really utilize to benefit our patients in the manner in which we can, uh, because, you know, beliefs matter. And when someone is in a fear-based state with fear energy and they are kind of grounded in this self-protective mode of the next bad thing that could happen, you know, it's just a matter of time before that becomes manifested into reality because it has Mm -hmm. so many Uh, negative consequences because we are creators of our own reality. I'm convinced of that. So you believe something to be true. It is your truth. It is real. And you experience that at every level of your being and your experience, including the cellular level. I mean, it's just Mm -hmm. a matter of of fact that that we do not utilize to our benefit. Yeah, I totally agree. I I tell my patients sometimes like your cells are programmed to do your bidding. So whatever you're telling them that you want them to do, either because you truly want it or because you're afraid of it, 
whatever that loop is going on in your head, you're blasting that down to all of your minion cells every single day. Like, of course, they're not going to get well if you're saying, I'll never get well, I'll never get well. So very powerful. when you talk about fear, you're talking about like extreme fear about what's happening. No, I, I, I talk about your fear. I hide from my son all the time and I jump out and scare him. Not that and, fear. And he has a cold right now. <laughs> Did I get him sick? I, I don't know about that, but I want, I want you to see fear differently, Sean. Okay. Right. Fear is a, a, an attack thought. Do you know what an attack thought is? Is you know, that like your parasympathetic, like your brain is constantly in a state of like looking around for threats? Well, I mean, I, that might be that higher level of, of fear that you can consciously pay attention to and be aware of. But are, are you aware of all your attack thoughts? You know, an attack thought is any thought that pops into your mind that creates separateness, that somehow we're divided or we're separate or someone can hurt me or someone can take this or inner competition or I have to protect myself against this person. Or that can, That is frequent for a lot of people and they don't even have the capacity right now to observe that as just a thought. It is their reality. The, so imagine what that does to your body. The argument you have with somebody in your mind when that person isn't even there. Ex exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or the conversation or yeah. the thought or the prediction, you know, that you're trying to protect yourself or every time you go and you look at your 401k and then you, you know, you want to see where the stocks are going. Like all these attack thoughts that are constantly impacting our body. That's a fear-based state. Mm -hmm. And many live in that, and that has physical consequences on the body. Well, it also has um, social and emotional and conceptual repercussions, because if you're in a fear state, you're just wanting the fear to go away. So you're going to follow people's orders. You're going to do their mandates. You're going to resonate when they tell you, if you don't get this flu shot, you're going to make yourself or your patients sick and you'll be ostracized. I mean, it, it allows people to, I think, become enslaved to other people's agendas. Exactly. And even when we talk about my daughter right now, um, to me, I'd be willing to pull her out of school for the fight. But to her, to have some student loan debt, right? Mm -hmm. And to, it, it, that's like unfathomable to put that work in and to... She's got the sunk cost fallacy right yeah, now. But that's how, you're, that's how you're controlled. And so the difference between you know, a fear-based state would be to live in that. Well, Kristen had to take the leap that... She had to choose an entire new way to, to live, to work. You know, she had to leave, take the risk to leave what she knew, what was secure, what was safe, what provided income. And if you probably look back on that, it's probably a blessing. The Lyme's disease, the COVID, right? That, that was a blessing that was probably st obviously stressful at the time. But now looking back, it's pro you have a different perspective on it. Yeah, the Lyme, um, the Lyme didn't feel like a blessing when I was lying in my bed. I remember telling my son, my oldest, who was probably 16 at the time, um, the story that I told you and the choice that I made. And when I got to that part about the choice, he burst into tears and said, that's so selfish of you. How could you choose to leave us? How could you choose to die? I said, well, first of all, I didn't. And second of all, it didn't feel like a choice. It felt like an ultimatum. And I, like I said, it was a very powerful moment for me. And I, all I can say is it happened. And I'm sorry that you're scared by that. I'm glad I'm here too. But I remember thinking in the moment, if I'd known that level of pain was coming my way in this lifetime, I would have said, no, I pass. So I'm glad I'm on the other side of it, but it didn't feel like a blessing in the moment. Everything since then, 
you know, I'm it's it's much easier to see because I haven't had that extreme two by four. Maybe I haven't needed that because I've been more on track with what I'm supposed to be doing. That's the way I understand it. That's my more to, about my spiritual beliefs. Like I believe, I believe we have a purpose, and I believe if we get off track, we we get nudges and whispers, and then we get a two by four. <laughs> we don't listen to the nudges and whispers. I I don't want any more two by fours, despite the fact that it seems like I have a couple behind me holding up these books. <laughs> I I'm like I'm I'm over that. No, there was- I'll take whispers now. There was a, there is a physician by the name of Brian Weiss. He actually used to write books back in the eighties because he was a psychiatrist, the old time psychiatrist, not the one that wrote the prescriptions all the time, the one that actually was doing therapy. And he stumbled upon past life regression work and he started writing books on his hypnosis and his work with clients uh, in past life regression. And what's most interested is what the, the wisdom and the learning that came out of those sessions because uh, they were lessons from the guides uh, that mm-hmm. each person has guides that I, mean, I think we all as collective humanity have guides, but some of the lessons were the most profound wisdom that you could ever imagine. And we ask ourselves these profound questions regarding pain and suffering if God exists, how could this happen? How could that happen? How could there be war? You know, these are the things that lead people to lose any kind of connection with a, a higher being. But the truth of the matter is that in eternity, you know, our souls are actually eternal, that this time is actually a blip in the radar so fast that the events, even as painful and, and even the ones that, you know, have profound suffering can lead to such incredible wisdom, growth, and evolution that you would choose them ahead of time uh, if, if your, soul, your soul did. And these are the things you've learned from past lives that um, these were all experiences to promote your continued growth. Now, that's very hard for, I believe, for us to understand and grasp because, you know, when we're born into this body, we forget, right? And that's the illusion of separateness when in turn we're really all connected. I don't believe there are coincidences. There is no coincidence right now that I met Kristen and she is sitting on this podcast with us and having this conversation. And there are going to be thousands and thousands of people are listening to this right now, not by anything other than something that it was meant to to occur. Now you adapt that mindset, right? It is an expansion of consciousness. You now think differently. That has a profound impact on your well-being and health. Because now every person in your life could be a blessing. Everything that is provided to you is for your growth. Because I believe they're always knocking on the door. We just don't, we choose not to answer it, right? So I, this book by Doris Rapp, MD, is this your child? I don't think it was a coincidence that I have to read it. Because what happens is kids come with hyperactivity, depressed mood, eating disorders, And if I just go ahead and work with those people in the manner in which I was taught, I'm going to fail many. They're going to get horribly sick. And everything that I do in my life, all my purpose, I will not be able to meet that purpose because I will just be following the rules that were provided to me when I see harm. I've just been having a a number of consultations with families across the country recently on the the concept of eating disorders. And some of the food that we're putting into our bodies 
is leading teenagers to be insulin resistant and pre-diabetic and obese and are engaging in binge eating and then purging afterwards. And they go to their typical doctor, eating disorder specialist, and they tell them there's no such thing as a bad food. As if that idea of bad food is what drives the eating disorder. And until we heal them, because the type of food that they are eating is actually poisonous and making them feel ravenous and hungry all the time, how do we not have that part of the treatment plan? How do we just consider it to be a psychological or emotional issue and completely invalidate what that person is going through physically? I mean, I don't know if you've ever, you know, you go through the holidays a little bit and you eat some bad food or you have some sugary food and have some drinks and all that. I don't, I don't know about you, but then I'm craving sugar the very next day. <laughs> now, imagine like what somebody is going through when they've been binging on this food and they're 16 years old and they've been doing it for months. And it's just insanity to me that their recommendation is Prozac and just changing the, and, and, and a therapy, right? Like without being able to target those. I mean, that's part of the sick care system that, that we're in. And yeah. my, my point being is all this information has been provided to me. I just had to open the door and accept it. And I only accepted it when I knew that it was there for a reason. And I didn't dismiss it. And every person I met was giving me something. And it's profoundly changed my life. So, you know, you talk about these little nudges and voices and we have to listen to them sometime. Like, I feel like that book was brought in here for a reason. And I'm a father of a three-year-old. I'm surrounded by other families with young children. And some of them have behavioral issues. Some of them have delayed uh, speech development. And is it is it possible, Kristen, that there are, you know, some of these common you know, nutritional deficiencies, diseases, or parasitic uh, infections that cause behavioral problems in children? And what should parents be looking for? Sean, I don't, I think it's not only possible, it's probable. Okay. Um, and that comes from the evidence I have of sitting with families who have kids. You know, one of the, one of the jobs I do is I'm the medical director for a center called the Family Hope Center. And there we teach parents of kids with um, neurological issues of any kind. And that can in include extreme behavioral problems that have kind of gotten them labeled as, you know, ODD or um, ADHD is also one of the things we see a lot of. And all of these kids, two to one, have massive reduction in symptoms from just changing the diet, mm -hmm. cleaning up the sleep and the environment. Like, you know, the nutritional is sort of a holistic approach, right? It's not just the food you put in your eat, it's how much screen time you have and how much you know, time you have to eat and stress there is at the table and what you're actually eating and are there healthy fats? And there's so many parts to this that are, again, things that we've forgotten as humans that are species appropriate for us, but that we've gotten away from. And yeah, they make a massive difference. Yeah, I, I have some families and, um, you know, their children might be going through like early intervention for speech development and, um, and some behavioral problems. And I feel like that's, that's part of the solution, but there's so many more other parts that need to be looked at as uh, possible causes. And it's not something that is ever really spoken about because there's maybe this, and we started off having the conversation about this like stigma uh, associated with uh, certain approaches. And my wife is one who has always uh, embraced acupuncture, uh, Chinese medicine, 
Um, and I do believe it led to a successful birth for our child um, because there was a lot of things in her you know, body that needed to maybe come into uh, alignment or homeostasis or whatever you want to call it that um, made her more receptive to allowing a child to come into the world. Whereas she, if she went to a traditional, you know, doctor, it would just been, you know, pumping her full of hormones, trying to get her ovaries and all that stuff. So it's, um, there's so much in this world that we're constantly exposed to that is part of this learning process that we realize that everything we're, we're taught or that we believe to be true um, isn't necessarily the only uh, explanation. And I, that's, the, that's what I'm really enjoying about this process of the podcast is the more I, I learn, the more I realize I know nothing. <laughs> it's fascinating. Boy, have you grown over? I know, I know. But <laughs> you would have never said I know nothing. I know. Years I, ago. I was in a totally different world. I have not. I was not in wow. this space. <laughs> the transformational effects of podcasting. Yeah, I know, right? Crazy. I, I was on a uh, podcast last night um, in in Australia. Mm-hmm. So the uh, the woman who was doing the podcast is from Australia. And she was telling me a little bit about the culture of Australia and how sometimes the pendulum kind of swings in in a direction to the dialectical opposite or extreme. And so a lot of the problems that they're seeing in Australia do mimic what we see here in the United States. And we were talking about the cultural issues around parenting, for example, how, you know, there was a time where it was a very kind of authoritative approach for for parents. And, uh, you know, if you were a child of a very controlling or authoritative parent, uh, you, you may have then learned that um, there could be a better way. And then you swing to the opposite end of the dialect and you kind of give up all aspects of like structure, discipline, and control in, in, in your home. And then that's, you know, chaos as well. And one of the things I've always been saying is that parents are, are now parenting in fear. They're par- parenting in fear based on, on many factors, one of them kind of our expert culture always kind of conditioning parents to believe that you can screw up your kids all the time. Um, and so we've had to kind of swing the dialectical uh, kind of balance back to the middle. You know, there's more of a, a middle path that you can, you can have structure, discipline, and do it in a loving way. You can foster flexibility, independence, while at the same time, you know, yanking them from running out in the middle of traffic kind of approach, right? So like we have to be able to to also deal with our own fears as as parents and we have to have a willingness to be able to make hard and difficult decisions to save kids from themselves because developmentally they need us to do that and we have to reframe love in in that way um, yeah one of the things i've loved so much about your podcast is um how much emphasis you put on where resiliency comes from and the need to to expose our kids to things that are hard and that and expose ourselves to things that are hard because that makes us stronger and better. And I think that um, a lot of what happens when parents parent out of fear is that they end up protecting their kid from the sort of milestone failures that are necessary for kids to, you know, safe to fail. I mean, this is kind of how I treat Lyme. You know, I choose things that are going to be safe to fail. Like if it doesn't hurt you and it's potentially helpful, we're going to do it. Right. I'm not going to make you do anything that could kill you or really damage you or create long term harm. But we don't know in advance what's going to work. And I think the same is true of parenting. Like all parenting is pretty much an experiment. Every kid is different. You're different at every stage of your parenting career with every kid. It's a very it's a big complexity model. And I think going into it with the understanding of you are making you are doing experiments 
and you want them to be safe to fail. <laughs> but you want to do them and let your kid have those moments so that they can build resiliency and competency and self-confidence and capacity, really. This process of hormesis, right? Uh, we've talked about Yeah, hormesis. Um, Hashtag hormesis. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, right now I am in a 24-hour fast. I'm pushing towards 72 hours. I've never fasted for more than 24 hours. So this will be the first time I, I do it. And, you know, I've heard people talk about this biohacking kind of movement and talk about things like, hey, if I can, if I can suffer for a short period of time and it can provide me some profound, long-lasting health benefits, that's what I want in life, right? I'm willing to accept some degree of pain or suffering for greater benefits, whether it's mood, longevity, strength, you know? And I think we have to kind of reclaim that back in our lives. Like there has to be some degree of suffering for growth, right? Like I don't think it's in the best interest if a kid has a, sp a social phobia or speaking phobia to give them a, some form of an IEP so they don't ever have to speak in front of a class. Like I don't think that benefits them, right? That's, I think it's yeah. pretty clear because then what happens is you just develop a relationship with fear in which whenever you experience anxiety, you avoid something. And that is certainly the, I think, a path to misery in life. Instead, we have to embrace, we have to embrace discomfort, right? And that discomfort is really what drives us. Some of the mental benefits of doing hard things and the mood boosting effects of doing hard, difficult, challenging things, they're unmatched in life. Agreed. I think it might be a good time to give you some props for a hard decision I made recently to do hard things. Because I really think it might have come from the episode you did on 70, was it 75 hard? Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. We got in the, in the episode oh. again. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, a friend of mine who I swam in college and I'm recently reconnected with all my swimmer uh, team, my girls. And one of them said, listen, I'm taking my daughter to Greece for a seven day swim training trip, not a vacation but a tr like five, you know, five kilometers a day swimming between islands. Wow. And she put it out to the group and I kind of joked about it like, oh, that'd be fun. That'd be fun. And a day later when I got back to her to actually look at it, all the spots were gone. And I breathed the sigh of relief. I was like, oh, thank God. But instead of telling her I was relieved, I reached out to her and said, how dare you dangle this in front of us? And then there's no spots left. All of your master's club team from Boston is going, but none of your swim friends from college. And she's like, I'm so sorry if a spot opens up, I'll tell you. So on Friday of last week, she texted me, a spot just opened up, somebody dropped. And I went on the website and I checked in with my husband. I looked at the dates, my kid wasn't graduating then. And I was like, this feels really uncomfortable. I haven't trained in 30 years, I'm doing it. All right. And so I signed up for that thing on Friday. And this week I've been to four out of five master's swim sessions at our local master's club. Love it. Which has been really hard. Mostly hard just getting out of bed at five in the morning. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, it feels really good. And I, I want to attribute some of that to you because I that really that has stayed in my head is like it's important to do hard things. Like it's not going to kill you and it's going to make you better and you're going to get to go to Greece and swim among islands without drowning. All right, you're going to have to come back after your trip to Greece and there's going to be something that happened there that you're going to want to relay the story to us and it was because of the 75 heart. There are no coincidences. That'll <laughs> be the next the follow-up episode. Have you yeah. ever heard of the sport swim run? No. Swim run. Swim run. It's so you go to like an island chain. It's a competitive sport and you swim, run across the island, 
swim again, run across the island, swim again. Get out it's of here. It's called swim run. You can look it up. Yeah. It's not just called biathlon? <laughs> no, I actually Googled it too to make sure I got it right while you were talking. Uh, swim, wow. There's Swim Run USA. Um, yeah, swimrun.com. All you need to know about Swim Run, right? It's, they take you to some of the most beautiful places in the world and uh, they, they compete there. You know, I knew somebody who wow. did it, so it just popped in my, popped in my head. A cool idea. That's cool. Yeah. Well, listen, we've, uh, we've broached a lot of different topics today. Um, I think we need to promote you a little bit because you're, you're doing some really fascinating and interesting work from a model that I really support. And we, we've had other professionals on here now approaching the coaching model. Because I think from just a financial investment perspective, um, I think over the long run, if you're willing to invest some money actually into healthcare practitioners who are designed to kind of restore your health, then staying in the sick care system with the insurance base over and over and then, you know, having to deal with all the consequences, both financially, personally, and so forth. Like, I think when you see these physicians who are breaking free of the model and they are entering into a different kind of paradigm of care with clients that has much better results because you are going to be holistically treating that person. They're going to look at all aspects of their life in a similar way that, you know, Kristen, when you, sp when you met with the homeopath, you know, you were, you were treated differently, right? The, the approach was different. So you are doing some interesting work now. Can you tell us a little bit about the actual work that you're doing? If you can give us any information on how people can find you. And I know that we have a, a, a special coupon code too for some money off your, your own ebook that you wrote, which is fabulous. So I want to give you some time to promote yourself. Okay, thanks. Well, um, as I mentioned earlier, one of the things I, the only way to really see me one-on-one -on -one, um, as a new patient is to see me through the Family Hope Center. So people who have neurological issues of any kind can check out thefamilyhopecenter.com. It's not my business, but I love this. I love the team and I love what they're doing. And I um, want everyone who has any kind of a brain not functioning optimally to know about them because it's a very holistic, natural, you can do it at home. It's not super, not super complicated and it really works. Um, I also am coaching. So I'm doing a lot of online groups. I started in 2020, something called the Healing Grove, which is a membership where people meet every week online together. I facilitate those meetings. We have support groups. We also have experts I bring and you were an expert Roger recently um, on the Healing Grove. And that was really fabulous. I ended up releasing all those um, conversations as part of my podcast, which is kind of my free way that I'm reaching as many people as I can with tools and tips and you know, mindset shifts for holistic, whole person healing. Um, and the Healing Grove is something that's a paid membership. And um, we have people in there who are well, who are sick and looking to be more well, and people who just are really interested in kind of learning alongside other people, tools and tips and, and practices. And we really, we really get into it together. And I guide people through that. And then I recently started a Lyme membership. So for people who, because I'd closed my practice to new people, I still have 20 people a week call me saying I have a new diagnosis or an old diagnosis just found out I have chronic Lyme and I just don't have the capacity to see everyone. So I've opened up another membership, which is my Life After Lyme coaching program. So people every week for an hour sit with me in a group on Zoom and we do one case review. We go over one person's story in depth and I you know, we point out maybe gaps in the in the protocol or areas to consider, or here's what you might have missed, or here you're, you're doing great here, just stay the course and just wave pom-poms sometimes, which is always a fun call. 
Um, and then we also have time for people to provide updates and get support and guidance. And that's been really, actually really well received because people just don't have access to Lyme doctors. They don't have access to people who understand how to treat this. The ebook is where I started. You know, it was as I was leaving my old hospital job and really just wanted to download everything I had in my brain that, you know, sometimes took two or three hours or two or three sessions to download for patients and teach them. And of course, their brains are foggy and they're sick and they're not taking it all in. And often people would say, oh, this is such great information. Do you have it all in a book? And I'd be like, no, didn't you just take notes? Like, that's the book. That's your book. And it wasn't enough. So the ebook was really my attempt to just get all this information into people's hands in a way that's kind of handheld and guided and easy to, I hope, easy to access and understand. And most everything in that book, minus antibiotics, which don't have to be part of your story to recover for Lyme, can be done without a doctor. So it's really a kind of a, a empowering self-help tool. And uh, Dr. Ryman's been very kind to offer $10 off this ebook. So if you look in our show summary, there's a link directly to the ebook. And there's a coupon code, just put uh, RadGen podcast, and you'll get those $10 off. And thank you for that, Dr. Ryman. Yeah, my pleasure. And if people need more off to be able to access it, just contact me. You guys can contact me through Instagram or on my website. There's a way to get in touch. So yeah, I want people to have this information. It's just, to me, it's it's the, it's the, map that I wish I'd had, you know, I created it through walking it and looking back and figuring out kind of what worked and what didn't work. And it's, it's less about actual tools and products and more about a mindset and more about an approach that helps you understand that when you're dealing with a complex issue, such as Lyme disease, or really any of the mystery illnesses, you have to be willing to engage in small mini experiments with safe to fail things and learn from your successes as well as your failures and make more of the thing, you know, again, ooch yourself from neutral to bliss, make more of the choices that are going to get you in the direction you want to go. Pop culture reference. You learn that you either get busy living or you get busy dying. What's it from? <laughs> uh, that would be um, the, uh, uh, the, the prison movie, uh, Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> great, great line. And that I, was a good one. And, and I feel hopeful after today's podcast because, uh, you know, I think people are going to listen to this and get busy living. Yeah. So Dr. Kristen Ryman, I want to thank you for a radically genuine conversation. Mm, thank you guys. This has been awesome. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.